0: We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. you prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body? You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, I tackle stories of mystery from history, always attempting to remain critical, but never cynical. Uh, In this episode, you will probably have noticed already that the title has uh, one from the vaults written on front of it. What that means, of course, is that I have dug into the vaults to get an old episode and um, maybe something unusual maybe something that most people out there haven't heard or maybe most of you uh, are at least have not heard it for a long time the reason being that um, well I have a new job here at the cabin and um, as those of us who have occasionally changed job or changed career as you probably know it takes a little bit of getting used to it takes a bit of time everything just takes a little bit longer everything is a little bit uh little bit more filling of the head if you know what I mean so I don't have as much time at the moment as I used to for other things and you know I'm someone who doesn't believe in putting yourself under too much pressure I think it's good to know yourself believe yourself allow the amount of time for new things that you need and uh, yeah like not put yourself under too much pressure so for that reason I always do hold a few episodes up my sleeve in reserve for times such as this and this one is actually a really good one i have been intending to put this on the main feed uh, anyway just in case anyone out there hasn't heard it this is of course the bridey murphy episode originally aired well three maybe four years ago uh, late 2017 early 2018 something like that um it's a story about recovered memories from uh, colorado in the 1950s it's a story about hypnosis it's a story about past life regression now a lot of people have claimed to have had past life regression in the history of the paranormal. Nothing too unusual about that, or at least nothing unique about it, except this one This one somehow really caught on. It really caught the imagination of the American public back in the 1950s. A man named Maury Bernstein wrote a book all about it called The Search for Bridie Murphy. That was, as I recall, my main source for this particular episode, back in the day and my point of interest here of course is that the woman known as Virginia Ty who was a Colorado housewife um, came to believe that she was having memories of a past life as an Irish woman from right here in County Cork of course a woman by the name of Bridie Murphy and one of the reasons I think this story was so interesting is that the story itself that she recalled under hypnosis had all of these kind of tangible details with place names and other kind of historical details that people were then able to actually go out and double check against. So that's, you know, instead of just being one of these, you know, interesting if true kind of stories, there was some stuff here that could be really checked out and really tested and um, that adds a whole extra dimension to the story. So I hope you enjoyed this one. My beer for this episode, I'm drinking some Curious Society Night Tide, which is a cold brew coffee oatmeal stout. So two out of those three things are like my favourites, coffee and stout. Oatmeal is, you know, I'll take it or leave it. Uh, a few shout-outs to people before we get stuck in. Huge, huge, huge thanks to Anne, who uh, decided to support the show over at Buy Me A Coffee, which you can do as well. Of course, it is always Buy Coffee forward slash White Atlantic. And no weird, because it's just that kind of website, and it just did that to me. I don't know why. So huge thanks to Anne, who says, from my cabin in the woods to yours, And, uh, you know, those of us rustic livers have got to stick together, of course. And a mega, mega, mega huge uh, Conan the Barbarian-sized thanks to listener Matt, who has supported us once again via Buy Me A Coffee and uh, sent in a whole bunch of Conan quotes. He mentioned that our previous episode about the Lost Cosmonauts was all that is best in life. So, Matt, all I can say to you is I hope that uh, one of these days you finally solve the riddle of steel. Uh, so again, if you want to support the show as a once-off, no commitment kind of deal, uh, and uh, maybe even get a lovely shout out to boot, especially if you put a funny comment on your um, your contribution, uh, that once again is buy me a coffee forward slash Wide Atlantic. Now, uh, just a general thanks to everybody who shared the Lost Cosmonaut episode because we had, a huge, uh, we had a huge interaction with people from that and loads of people shared it and lots of other people found us through it and that was wonderful. So if you haven't heard it, go back and check it out because it was a really, really fun episode and I learned a tremendous amount from it as well myself. Just a couple of other small things. I had one story sent in to me by listener Ian. This is from Rock Paper Shotgun, which is a website. And it's about a mysterious carving that appeared on the side of a hill, a place called Mendip Hill near Cheddar in Somerset. Now, this is one of those places in the UK that are famous for their giant chalk historical figures. And what appeared was a thing that looks like a werewolf or some sort of half man, half wolf type thing. It has been noted that the style of art used to do this is a bit reminiscent of like, american football team logos so there's a few jokes in the comments about that but nobody knew what this meant or what it was about it was actually supposed to have been a promotional image for the new resident evil game resident evil 8 the village and you know i've done an episode previously on my sort of nostalgia for at least the early years of survival horror from the 90s so i do have a passing familiarity with resident evil i'm kind of aware of what's going on with it to some degree Uh, but nobody in this part of England did because it was just a carving of a werewolf and apparently Capcom, the company who makes the games, had to come back and write Resident Evil The Village under the character of the wolf in massive letters because nobody knew what it was supposed to be about and I guess it didn't help that there is no connection whatsoever between the game or Capcom or the history of Resident Evil and uh, Somerset at all, as far as I know. So thanks, Ian, for sending in that a uh, ridiculous story also very quickly myself i was out and about in county cork recently this week i won't say where but i came across a uh, a castle a fairly well known one in in a town it's not hidden or anything like that but um it was in a fairly good state of repair for a ruin and i was wondering whether there was a ghost story attached to it and indeed there is and the story goes that and uh, the man of the house in times past was fond of pleasure and spending his money and getting himself into debt. And there's a variation on the old, you know, the gambler is gambling at night and the devil appears to him, which is a folk story associated with many castles in the British Isles. In this version of the story, a mysterious gentleman appears to him, puts a bag of gold on the table and says, would you like to be free of debt? And if you you want to be free of debt, you can enter into a bargain with me. And he produced a white rat and said you can have the gold as long as you agree to have this rat with you at all mealtimes sitting on the chair to your right. So the man of the house said he would agree to this and uh, for many years he kept the rat with him uh, for his mealtimes. His friends all made fun of him until one time he had finally had enough of this and he got rid of the rat. And uh, the man dressed in black appeared to him once again and said... Um, have you fulfilled your promise? And the fellow said yes until this night, and the uh, the devil basically said the promise was forever, and took the man out the window up into the sky and did away with him. So an interesting take on a rather common ghost story associated with castles there. Right we better get ready for this main episode and um, as I said it is from my old series which was called Strange Ireland the one that precedes this series. Everything was scripted in those days which meant it sounds really good but it everything took a very long time to produce. This one probably took about a month to read, research, write and record. With that, I'm going to take you back in time, not only to the beginning of my podcasting career uh, three or four years ago, but also back in time to the 1950s for A Tale of Hypnosis and Remembered Past Lives. Here we go. In 1956, a very strange book called The Search for Bridy Murphy was published in the US and caused something of a sensation. It was written by a man named Moray Bernstein. Now, in the book, Bernstein claims that, while under hypnosis, a Colorado housewife, who he names Ruth Simmons, her real name was Virginia Ty, regressed to younger and younger versions of herself, until she begun speaking as someone who appeared to be herself in a previous life. ...an Irish woman named Bridie Murphy who lived in Cork in the early 19th century. This book sold by the truckload and reignited a mainstream interest in the paranormal... ...or as it was called, parapsychology. Uh, This was something which had lain somewhat dormant since the demise of spiritualism in the late 1930s. Bridie Murphy was a media circus. Life magazine chronicles tales of people buying entire store loads of the Bridie Murphy books... ...to hand out to all their friends... Amateur hypnotism boomed. People all around the country began to recall their own past lives. In California, people attended come as you were parties. And in Houston, people drank Bridie Murphy cocktails a jigger of vodka and a half jigger of liqueur with lemon juice and flaming rum, in case you were curious. And while there's no doubt that at least some of this interest was faddish and tongue in cheek, It's clear that Bernstein's book tapped into something deep and significant within the psyche of the public. People will always be attracted to the strange, and will always have a deep need to believe that there's more to life than what we see around us. It's a need we've encountered before in the podcast, and I have a feeling it's one we're going to meet again and again, taking a different shape and finding a different focus each time. Now, the paranormal landscape of the 1950s was... Besides the UFO contactee movement that we discussed in a previous episode, it was a comparative lull in the history of what I consider New Age thought. Now that's not to say that people didn't continue believing in weird things, it's just that the fringe beliefs that predominated at this time were very influenced by the advances of science and space travel, and the atom bomb in particular. So the UFO phenomena was unquestionably the most visible type of paranormal belief in the 50s, And with this came a sense that this was a kind of a realistic or a scientific mystery. The science fiction of the period also presented largely physical, scientific, rational threats that operated in the same universe as us and according to the same rules. There was a lot of giant bugs, a lot of aliens from faraway planets who arrive on Earth using advanced but not supernatural technology. So there was a very nuts and bolts quality to the fringe thinking at this time and there was less attention paid to stories of ghosts, spirits, or the afterlife. The Bridie Murphy story, coming in the middle of the 50s, was a rare instance of a more spiritual, existential type of phenomena taking root. The phenomena, of course, was reincarnation. Hi folks, editing Kean here. Just wanted to pop in and say I have learned a lot since I recorded this episode, and I do think that there was a lot more going on In the 50s, then I'm probably giving credit for here. However, I think it is fair to say that sort of the UFO phenomena was definitely the most visible and well-known type of supernatural belief at this time. In the book, Bernstein introduces himself as a successful, respectable Colorado businessman who initially had no interest in parapsychology. From what others have said over the years, everyone from publishers to Life magazine writers, this seems to hold true. He's not known to have perpetuated any cons or frauds either before or after the extraordinary incident he's about to relate. He's also described as having a distinct likeness to Frank Sinatra. Following a chance encounter with a client's relative who is also a talented hypnotist, Bernstein develops an interest in the subject. He witnesses an impressive demonstration at a cocktail party. A female subject is put into a trance during which auto-suggestion is used. Later, after awakening, she is induced by the hypnotist to do various bizarre and embarrassing things in front of the other guests. Bernstein is impressed, and his thoughts, at this point, are the same as what my own might be. Having finally learned that hypnosis is a reality, I machine-gunned a round of questions at our victorious hypnotist. If this thing is true, if this is a fact, then why is it not more widely used? If the mind can be so detached, then aren't the possibilities infinite? If suggestion is so powerful in this state, then is this not a powerful weapon for good? If the human mind can be so directed, so molded, so impressed, then why does not every doctor understand the fundamentals of hypnosis? Why is it not a must for every psychiatrist? Why is the reason that science does not show more interest? Why do people like me have to become more acquainted with hypnosis only through stage performances or through accidents like this? Bernstein is bowled over by the possibilities hypnosis seems to offer. He can't understand why science seems to have shunned it, and why hypnosis has been relegated to the ghetto of parlour tricks and fake stage magic, when it could have such profound implications for medicine. Now the truth is, there was a time when hypnotism almost broke out of the shadows and into the light of more respectable medicine. In the 1840s, a Scottish surgeon named James Braid begun to use hypnotism to alleviate pain in his patients while he was carrying out surgery on them. He did his best to understand how and why this seemed to really work. He wanted to leave behind the sensationalism and hysteria associated with mesmerism, that's the precursor to hypnotism, and instead make hypnotism into something truly scientific. He dropped the hand-waving and ritual that stage mesmerists claimed were necessary to put someone into a trance. Now, there were many strange theories at the time that attempted to explain how mesmerism and hypnotism worked. For example, it was commonly believed that there was some sort of invisible substance, a universal fluid, kind of similar to the debunked concept of ether, a fluid that somehow linked the mesmerist and his subject, as if there was some actual physical stuff going between the two of them to cause this effect. Now, Braid had no time for ideas such as this. Well, I'd better say a few words about mesmerism. I can't just toss it out there and not give some explanation. Uh, mesmerism, sometimes called animal magnetism, was the forerunner of hypnotism. And it was more occult and hysteria than science. It was introduced to European society by a charismatic man named Franz Anton Mesmer. Now, he initially used magnets to cause various fluids that he believed were within the bodies of his patients. And he used the magnets to make this fluid move around, granting them better health. Later on, he ditched the magnets, deciding that, in fact, the power to heal resided within his own body. He called it animal magnetism, and he described it as an unknown force that all living things possessed. His hypothetical fluid, he imagined, filled the entire universe, creating good health when it was in a state of balance within someone's body, and a state of disease when it was not. His sessions were wild, his patients would work themselves up into a frenzy, goaded on by Dr. Mesmer himself, and it seems likely that their suggestibility, aided by his considerably dominating personality, was the real cause of any results that came from his treatment. Mesmer himself believed that he had discovered a new branch of science and did not really appreciate his work being considered occult. But that's an aside. Let's get back to Braid. Now, the Scottish surgeon realised that, unlike mesmerism, hypnotism was really a particularly deep form of relaxation, in which the subject was still conscious Quite unlike sleep. He found that while in this state, they were extremely suggestible and that suggestions made to them could have profound consequences. When he suggested that they felt no pain, they really appeared to feel no pain, even as he performed surgery on them. This state of relaxation, he found, could be induced by having the subject concentrate intensely on an object, such as a flickering candle, for example. He named this process hypnotism after Hypnos, the Greek god of sleep, though. He's using the term sleep figuratively. He knew that hypnotism wasn't really sleep. Now, while hypnotism was being used as an anaesthetic by some doctors during this period, big changes were happening in the world of medicine at the same time. Uh, Ether was discovered to be an effective anaesthetic during the 1840s, and later on in the 19th century, chloroform began to be used regularly for pain relief during surgery. Braid wrote that these chemicals were subject to abuses and that hypnosis presented no such dangers, as it didn't involve putting any foreign substances into the body. But medical science on the whole has long preferred the addition of a known substance in a controlled amount over the less reliable and more unpredictable mental alternatives. After all, hypnosis did not always affect people the same way. Some people are difficult to hypnotise, and it can take a long time to put somebody into a trance. Serious research into hypnosis as a credible alternative to anaesthetic drugs dried up. But back to Maury Bernstein. Now, over the next few years, after his first encounter with hypnotism, he learns how to do it for himself and becomes known for being able to cure people of various ailments using the power of suggestion while they are in a trance. Now, this is something that still happens today, it's not something medical science has a real problem with, but as with the case of James Braid previously, it's more the unreliability that standard mainstream medicine is not so on board with. There's something a little bit unpredictable in the way that everybody reacts differently to this, but Bernstein seems to have a bit of a knack for it. Eventually, he becomes interested in the use of age regression. Now this is when a hypnotist asks a subject to return to an earlier time in their life and they begin speaking as though they are actually at that younger age. Now today's medical science and psychology reckon that when a person in a trance reacts this way it's partly because they are reliving a past episode but it's also partly a bit of role play, a willing engagement in some kind of role play. After all, a hypnotist can't really make a person do something they really unconsciously don't want to in general. A grown man may speak as though he's a three-year-old while uh, undergoing this age regression. As Bernstein notes, there may be changes in handwriting, behaviour and reflexes. Genuine memories may be being relived, but it's recognised today that a hypnotised person is in a state where reality can be very malleable. It's a state in which false memories can be created as easily as real ones are being remembered. In short, age regression is real... But what it is, is more complicated than you'd think. Just so you know, I think I'd be even more harsh on age regression nowadays, especially all that I've read about the nature of memory, uh, in particular the work of Elizabeth Loftus. The word I hear most often now used to, to describe the kind of false memories generated by age regression is confabulation. Bernstein states in his book, It is interesting to note, furthermore, that changes in handwriting, behavior, vision, and reflexes all take place during hypnotic age regression. For instance, the signature of one of my subjects told that he is eight years old will be substantially different from that of the same person when he is told that he is only six years old. When the five-year-old level is reached, perhaps the subject can print his name. At an earlier suggested age, he will be capable neither of printing nor writing his name. Handwriting experts will usually confirm that these samples of writing, when compared with specimens which were actually produced during the childhood of the subject, are practically identical. I also learned that intelligence tests and reading tests given at various levels during an age regression confirm its reality. Moreover, a person who stuttered at, say, the age of seven, will likely to do so once again when regressed to that level, and then the defect will disappear as earlier periods are suggested. Regressed subjects will also re-experience traumatic events, illnesses, and earlier episodes of almost every nature. Fascinating stuff. Well, following all of this, Bernstein begins to take more of an interest in the paranormal. At first, it's prompted by several weird dreams he's having. The dreams appear to be prophetic, predicting small events that happen in his everyday life. Naturally enough, he takes an interest in this and starts reading about it. Uh, He quickly goes down the rabbit hole, becoming knowledgeable about a vast range of fringe topics. Interestingly, this spans the entire gradient from very science-based views on the paranormal to more spiritual interpretations. On the one hand, he gets in contact with the famous J.B. Ryan from the Parapsychology Lab at Duke University in North Carolina. Ryan is a real superhero to people who are interested in the history of the paranormal. He took a very interesting um, attitude towards it. Ryan's team carried out serious, sober and frankly kind of boring experiments over several decades to see if they could find solid, statistical evidence for extrasensory perception. They ran literally thousands of trials using Zener cards. You know, those cards that Bill Murray uses at the beginning of Ghostbusters. There's five cards and they have symbols on them, the wavy lines and the circle. You probably know them if you saw them. So Ryan's work, while it was never considered exactly mainstream, it does remind me just how close parapsychology did come to being a respected, accepted science in the middle of the 20th century. The very fact that a university actually let someone like him develop a department like this and they paid for it, it shows the level of importance and seriousness that was attached to the subject at the time. On the other hand, Bernstein goes down a deep, deep rabbit hole when he also becomes very impressed by the career of one Edgar Casey, Known as the Sleeping Prophet, Casey was a 19th century mystic who used supposed supernatural powers to heal people and make predictions of the future. His prophecy and philosophy has a decidedly mystical and religious bent. Casey himself is a fascinating case and hugely important to the development of paranormal thought, particularly in America, but that's a story for another day. I've got to keep this on track somehow. What's important here is that Bernstein was consuming literature from both sides of the aisle. He was, by nature, a methodical and business-minded man who liked to consider things scientifically. I have a background in science myself, and I am impressed by the pains he took in his book to uh, investigate all the phenomena that he was interested in. He does seem to set up double-blind testing whenever possible, and he considers every other alternative whenever he can, and I'm satisfied that he is genuine when he says that the things he found inexplicable... Uh, were genuinely inexplicable to him. So there's quite a lot to be impressed by in his book and in his attitude. But he was being more influenced by the New Age uh, at this time as well, so the more metaphysical aspects of the paranormal. So both of these two sides of him were to influence what was about to come, the single strangest case of his brief career in hypnotism. Perhaps he shows his hand and his attitude most clearly when he says from his book, But now at last there is scientific evidence that men are something more than bodies, that they have minds with freedom from physical law, that these minds have unique creative forces which transcend the space-time mass relations of matter. The mind, in short, has been found to be a factor in its own right and not something which is centred completely in the grey matter of the organic brain. This new evidence, as it is developed, cannot help but strike hard against man's inhumanity to man. Before his death in 1923... Charles Steinmetz, the mathematical wizard and electrical engineer, told the world that science, when it finally turned towards spiritual discoveries, would make more progress in 50 years than in all its past history. If that great genius were alive today, he would probably agree that the gong has sounded at last. The fateful half-century has finally got underway. So that's quite a lot of preamble to uh, let you know where Bernstein was at, but I think it's important just to appreciate his mindset when he went into this case, because things are about to get really strange. Bernstein is particularly interested in fusing these two different ways of looking at things, and he's trying to make science of the spiritual. As he inevitably crawls towards the topic of reincarnation, he becomes particularly taken with the notion that maybe the soul is just another kind of electromagnetic resonance, one that can transfer after death from one body to the next. He uses the example of a worn-out television set that can no longer pick up televisual waves, but purchasing a new one will allow you to pick up those same waves in a new body, so to speak. Overall, Bernstein's sheer enthusiasm for everything strange and inexplicable is enjoyable and infectious. It's impossible not to like him. It's also impossible, for me at least, not to feel a little envy towards him for the era he lived in, when stuff like this could still be taken seriously, when it seemed as though parapsychology needed maybe just a little more research to prove, but that we were surely only around the corner from general scientific acceptance of psychic phenomena. Such was his state of mind when he met the young couple he names Ruth and Rex Simmons. Now his use of false names here is important, as it indicates that Ruth Simmons, who was really Virginia Ty, though I'll continue to refer to her as Ruth as he does in his book, She was not particularly interested in being involved in all of the hoopla that was to come. In fact, over the course of the book, Ruth indicates over and over again that she doesn't particularly enjoy the hypnotism sessions that were to make her famous. And she keeps trying to discontinue them. Now, the Simmonses were a fashionable, popular couple, hot on Bernstein's cocktail party circuit. Ruth herself was an ideal subject for hypnotism. She went under quickly and easily. She was the natural choice for his experiments in reincarnation. His intention was to bring Ruth back to an infant stage using age regression and then bring her even further back, over the hump as he terms it, beyond the time of her birth, just to see what happens. Bernstein carried out his first experiment on Saturday, November 29th, 1952. He used a candle to put Ruth under. He carried out the age regression, first to seven years old. Ruth began speaking as a young girl, describing her life at school who was sitting near her in class, who she was friends with, that sort of thing. Then they regressed to five years old. Again, Ruth recalled who she sat near at kindergarten. Also, her favourite toys and games. Then they went younger, to three and one years old. Now, it must be mentioned at this point that modern science and psychology reckon that people don't have any true memory of events that happen while they're this young. It's believed that any such memories people report, either consciously or under hypnosis are a confabulation of fact and fiction, or perhaps some sort of cryptonesia, some sort of false memory. Now whatever the case, Ruth continued to remember details of her life as an infant. Then Bernstein went further. I want you to keep on going back and back and back in your mind. And surprising as it may seem, strange as it may seem, you will find that there are other scenes in your memory. There are other scenes from faraway lands and different places in your memory. I will talk to you again. I will talk to you again in a little while. I will talk to you again in a little while. Meanwhile, your mind will be going back, back, back until it picks up on a scene. Until, oddly enough, you find yourself in some other scene, in some other place, in some other time. And when I talk to you again, you will tell me about it. You will be able to talk to me about it and answer my questions. And now just rest and relax while these scenes come into your mind. Now you're going to tell me What scenes came into your mind? What did you see? Uh, scratched the paint off all my bed. Just painted it and made it pretty. It was a metal bed, and I scratched the paint off of it. Dug my nails on every post and just ruined it. It was just terrible. Why did you do that? Don't know, I was just mad. Got an awful spanking. What is your name? Uh, Friday. Your name is what? Friday. I was under the impression that she had said Friday. The others in the room, as they later told me, also thought she said Friday, but we were soon to learn otherwise. Don't you have any other name? Uh, Bridie Murphy. And where do you live? I live in Cork, Cork. Is that where you live? Uh Uh-huh. And the name of your mother? Kathleen. And the name of your father? Duncan, Duncan Murphy. And thus was the Cork woman Bridie Murphy introduced, or should I say reintroduced, to the world. This was to be the beginning of several sessions in which Bridie provided information about her life in early 19th century Ireland. It seems that she's about eight years old in the year 1806. She uses the word barrister to describe her father's job, which surprises Bernstein, perhaps as it's not the kind of word an American would use to describe a lawyer. She described how, at the age of 17, she marries a man from Belfast and moved there. She provides the names of family, friends, churches and other locales in both Cork and Belfast. Bridie describes herself as a Protestant, so perhaps it's not surprising that she doesn't know too many Irish words when Bernstein asks her, but she does use the word braet to describe a drinking vessel. Now, it's not a word I'm familiar with, but then Irish has changed a lot since being reformed in the latter 19th century. She did produce a blessing she claimed her family used before meals. Bless this house and all the weather, keep it gay in springy heather. Bless the children, bless the food, keep us happy, bright and good. Some of the things Bridie does remember are striking, as are some of the things she doesn't. She remembers places in Ireland such as the provinces Munster and Ulster, but cannot remember the other two. She recalls passing through the town of Carlingford on the way from Cork to Belfast. She mentions famous mountains and lakes but then cannot name them. She's broadly aware of the political situation on the island at the time, mentioning the differences between Protestants and Catholics and between Loyalists and Republicans. She speaks of knowing common tales of myth and folklore, of Cú and Deirdre of the Sorrows. Of course, it's not impossible for a 1950s Colorado housewife to have come across this information. It's simply unlikely. And as far as Bernstein knows at this point, Ruth has no particular interest in history and no connection with Ireland either. She finishes by describing how she died at the age of 66 after falling down the stairs. Intrigued, Bernstein questions her about whether she remembers what happened to her after her death. She described moving about freely from her body as some sort of ghost, visiting her elder brother back in Cork and trying to speak to him, though he cannot hear her. She reported fragmentary memories of other lives before or after being Bridie Murphy, implying a kind of never-ending cycle of death and rebirth. But none of these lives are ever fleshed out as vividly as Bridie's. And in the future, Bernstein concentrates on her memories of that time. Over the course of the recordings, Bridie emerges as a distinct personality. She talks and behaves differently to Ruth. Sometimes she becomes exasperated with Bernstein repeatedly asking her the same questions, as he's cross-referencing and trying to see if she's being consistent with her information. Reading the transcripts of the recording sessions is quite haunting. Hearing Bridie describe her life really does feel as if we're somehow magically getting a window into the past. All in all, her description of her life and afterlife as Bridie Murphy is internally very consistent, with a wealth of detail and period-specific vocabulary that it's hard to imagine someone in the root situation coming across. Even if we are to take this as an example of the unconscious mind creating false memories, it's an incredible achievement. All this information came out of Ruth Simmons at very short notice when asked various different questions by Bernstein, and it's somewhat beggar's belief to think that she had consciously constructed this elaborate reality herself beforehand. Therefore, we've got to assume that if we're being sceptical on this, that it must be the unconscious, which is pretty impressive too. Now, there is, however, some precedent for this. In the 1890s, there was a faddish obsession with life on Mars. It was believed that human like beings must inhabit the planet, as it was relatively close to Earth and it's similar enough in terms of size and temperature. During this time, several respectable psychologists recorded incredible cases of female subjects going into a trance and experiencing communication from these supposed Martian civilizations. In more than one instance, these subjects, usually young women, went into a trance and gave incredible detail about life on the Red Planet. They provided a social, sexual and architectural breakdown of this imagined society. Every detail you could wish to know was provided. They even gave examples of Martian languages and writing with internally consistent characters and grammar. Imagine that the human brain could unconsciously fabricate such a thoroughly constructed fictional reality without us being aware of it consciously. The Martian communication is a fascinating case, but that's a story for another day. The half-Greek, half-Irish writer Lafcadio Hearn, a collector of folklore and fantastic stories, tells a tale called By the Japanese Sea in his book Glimpses of Unfamiliar Japan. The story goes like this. Once there lived, in the Izumo village called Mokida no Ura, a peasant who was so poor that he was afraid to have children. And each time that his wife bore him a child, he cast it into the river and pretended that it had been born dead. Sometimes it was a son, sometimes a daughter, but always the infant was thrown into the river at night six were murdered thus. But as the years passed, the peasant found himself more prosperous. He had been able to purchase land and to lay by money. And at last his wife bore him a seventh child, a boy. Then the man said, Now we can support a child, and we shall need a son to aid us when we are old. And this boy is beautiful, so we will bring him up. And the infant thrived, and each day the hard peasant wondered more at his own heart, for each day he knew that he loved his son more. One summer's night he walked out into his garden, carrying his child in his arms. The little one was five years old, and the night was so beautiful with its great moon that the peasant cried out, Ah, tonight, truly a wondrously beautiful night it is. Then the infant, looking up into his face and speaking the speech of a man, said, Why, father, the last time you threw me away, the night was just like this, and the moon looked just the same, did it not? And thereafter, the child remained as other children of the same age, and spoke no word. The peasant became a monk. And this rather chilling tale of reincarnation shall serve as a reintroduction to the story of Bridie Murphy. If Bridie Murphy could demonstrate some skill or ability that Ruth Simmons demonstrably did not possess, then the case for Bridie's existence would be a lot stronger. During one of the sessions, Bernstein hypnotised Ruth, and she began speaking once again as Bridie, Bernstein asked Bridie if she knew any party tricks. Bridie said that she could dance and that her favourite dance was known as the morning jig. So, seizing on this, the hypnotist told her that when she awoke, she would be able to remember clearly how to perform the dance. The conversation continued with Bridie providing more details about her life in Ireland. As usual, most of these details were relatively convincing, but not impossible for Ruth herself to have known about. Bridie, for example, mentioned that she liked to make boiled beef and onions. She states that her husband Brian taught at Queen's University Belfast, but only when Bernstein provided the name of the institution. Now, I've been to Queen's, and it wasn't built until 1845, which still checks out as Bridie isn't supposed to have died until 1868. In any case, she seems to have had knowledge of things that happened after her death, either because she picked up this information during her stint in Limbo, as she describes it, or because Ruth herself had knowledge of things that had happened in the past. Now, during this same session, Bridie gives an address of sorts for where she lived in Cork. Now, this is where it gets interesting for me. She states that she lived in a place called The Meadows, but during this session, at least, she can say no more about this. When she came out of this trance, Bernstein encouraged Ruth to perform the morning jig, Ruth seemed confused and unsure as to what he meant but after requesting this three times the post-hypnotic suggestion took effect and Ruth performed, seemingly from subconscious or maybe muscle memory what Bernstein describes as a cute little dance. The dance ended with her putting her hand over her mouth. When she asked why, she said it was for the yawn. Bernstein made a link between the yawn and the name The Morning Jig but before he could get any more information Ruth had become herself once again and Bridie was gone. During this time, Bernstein's contacts in Colorado were checking everything they could about Bridie's story. They confirmed some of the basic place names she had given, Cork, Belfast, as well as less well-known places such as Carlingford, and the newspaper, the Belfast Newsletter. Some places she had mentioned they could not find on any maps, such as the town of Bailing's Crossing. Bernstein himself called the Irish Consulate and the Irish Railway Lines, but none of them had ever heard of this town. It wasn't until several weeks later that Bernstein encountered, by chance, several friends of friends who had actually been in this town in Northern Ireland, all of whom say that it was small enough not to appear on many maps. In fact, the best description I've found of it is that it's just a crossing, a place where two roads come together and not even a real town. All I can say is that I'd never heard of it, and without further geographical clues from Bernstein's book, I've been unable to find it on uh, maps myself, either in print or online. So really, we only have his own word for it existing at all. On the other hand, Bridey cites a St. Teresa's Church in Belfast. Now, this does exist. It's on the Glen Road, though it is properly called St. Matthias's Church. It is in the parish of St. Teresa's and is colloquially called St. Teresa's uh, in an informal sense. However, the building that's there now only dates to 1911. Ruth was recorded for the fourth time in July 1953 at a Colorado resort during a holiday. Her husband was becoming impatient with the sessions. He had no interest in the couple becoming known as cranks or charlatans of any kind. Bernstein sensed that he might not be able to get much more material from Ruth before this avenue was closed to him forever. During this session, Bridie said that as a teenager she attended Strains Day School in Cork. Bernstein got excited at this point. This is the kind of detail that can be checked against the historical record. Ruth sneezes, abruptly opening her eyes in the middle of the trance and asking for a linen which confuses everybody present. It's a few minutes before Bernstein realises that, still in character, she's using an archaic term for a handkerchief. There's a genuinely hair-raising moment when Bernstein tells her to come out of the trance and reminds her that she's really Ruth Simmons, only to have her open her eyes again and reply as Bridie. I can't deny that I was badly frightened by now. No use trying to deny it because the tape recorder at this point plainly indicates that my voice was cracking. It seemed as though she was going to insist upon retaining her identity as Bridie. Had I kept my presence of mind at this stage, I could have continued with the questioning. I was less than half finished, and this might have been an especially opportune time to quiz her. But now there is only one thing on my mind. Getting my subject out of that trance and back to the present time and place. In the next session, Bridie mentioned someone playing the pipes, an Irish variant of the Bagpipes, and a word that is generally mispronounced by anyone who isn't familiar with irish music as anyone would be at this stage of the game bernstein is fishing pretty hard for something he can track down that will prove Brady really existed he badgers her for some paperwork surely there's a marriage certificate or a death certificate or something anything bridey gets impatient at his questioning Now, I can't say I know enough about psychology to state that this is possible, but it feels that if Bridie is manifesting as some sort of secondary personality from Ruth's subconscious, well, it's almost as if Bridie knows that any such search for hard evidence will destroy her, and she is therefore dodging the question as much as possible, but always in a way that's consistent with her character. She changes the subject. She talks about her husband's family and how they felt about him marrying an orange, as they called her, meaning that she's a Protestant. She even uses the word hung to mean married, an archaic cork term I've heard older people use here. She correctly states that Queen's University was not technically a Protestant university, and that some Catholics did teach there. She says that her husband Brian wrote for the Belfast newsletter, and Bernstein strikes, peppering her with questions about how old he might have been at the time, or when he might have written them. Again, he's understandably desperate to find something that can be checked. Bridie, as though sensing his game, at first becomes vague, but then admits that it was after they had been married for about 25 years. What with the internal consistency of her life story, this may be enough for a cross-reference. Speaking of consistency, I'm impressed at the variety of Irish surnames Bridie uses to populate her world. Names like Far, Dooley and Fitzmaurice, All are genuinely Irish, but relatively uncommon. If she had only known O'Manis and McConnells, names any American would associate with Ireland, then her story would not ring as true. She's also familiar with currency, talking of pounds, tuppence and sixpence, though coins with these names would still have been used in Ireland in the 1950s. She mentions three songs that she likes. The Londonderry Air, which is a real tune, more commonly known here as Danny Boy, the minstrel song, and a song simply called Sean. Bernstein asks her if she knows anything about Blarney Castle, which is just outside Cork City. Her reply is a good example of the way in which she avoids answering things directly, while still giving the impression of a distinct personality that has lived its own life. Oh, Blarney, that's... There's a place where you go, and you know, you put your feet above your head, and you... It's a myth. Brian says that Father John would tell you the truth about that too. You have to... Believe you put your lips to it and then you get the tongue, the, the gift of the tongue. During this session, Bridie is more herself than ever before, as the Irish say. Her personality emerges more clearly as being different from Ruth's. She's alternately canny, suspicious and proud, and reacts in these various ways to situations that would be important to Bridie. As I've said before, reading the transcripts is quite haunting. The search for evidence of Bridie's life here in Ireland was carried out independently of Bernstein. This was a suggestion made by his editor. An Irish law firm was hired to track down as many details as possible. It soon became clear that such records that might have been useful were not often kept here during the first half of the 19th century. I decided to look into this myself. Population censuses were taken every 10 years beginning in 1821, but they show numbers and not names. To complicate things even further the investigators have to contend with the fact that Murphy is probably the most common name in Ireland. Nevertheless, they were able to score some hits. Bridie mentions a green grocer in Belfast called John Carrigans and another called Farrs. Library research in Belfast proved that these businesses did exist and that they were the only registered businesses under those names in the city at that time. They exist in a directory for the year 1865, but not for the years before or after. And besides relatively common knowledge facts about Cork, Galway and Belfast, Bridie's court hits on a myriad of smaller details, such as the existence of tobacco farmers in Cork and a large tobacco company operating in Belfast at this time. She talks about legendary figures such as Coo and she gets the particulars of the currency right too. With regards to the tobacco, this was only ever an infrequently grown crop here, and it isn't even common knowledge among Irish people today that it was ever grown here. Some of Bridie's more colourful uses of language were also put under the microscope. Two Irish authorities maintained that, while Brydie's remarks about the Deirdre story were essentially accurate, the king involved in this tale was the king of Ulster, not Scotland. Brydie had said, she was a beautiful girl and she was going to marry this king, this king of Scotland, and she didn't love him, and this boy came and saved her. It is true that Deirdre was to become the bride of the king of Ulster, who figures prominently in all versions of the story, it is also true that most accounts, including the two best-known works on the Deirdre legend, W.B. Yeats' Deirdre and J.M. Synge's Sorrows of Deirdre, contain no mention of the Scottish King. But another researcher found that there definitely were at least two other versions, one based in the Glen Massane manuscript in the Advocates Library in Edinburgh, and the other on a translation by Theophilus O'Flanagan, which included the additional episode with the King of Scotland, who had heard a description of Deirdre's beauty and had then sought her as a wife for himself. Objection was also made to Bridie's use of the word slip. It was contended that this word was anachronistic, that if she had used petticoat it would have been more in keeping with the times. Further checking, however, proved that slip is an old and honoured word, and that one of its old-fashioned usages was as a name for a child's pinafore or frock, undoubtedly the meaning in this case. Brighty's reference to the uncle who married the Orange came in for criticism too. Several persons felt certain that she would have said Orange Man instead of Orange. Here again, however, research supported Bridie. The term Orange applied to the ultra-Protestant party in Ireland in reference to the secret society of Orange men formed in 1795, and an individual member of the party, especially a female, could have been referred to as an Orange. Then there was the word linen, After she had suddenly sneezed during the fourth session, Bridie had asked for a linen. She was obviously referring to a handkerchief, but there is apparently no such usage in Ireland today. Once again, it was found that one of the meanings of the word linen, a meaning now obsolete in the singular, was something made of linen, such as a linen garment or a handkerchief. Bernstein finishes his book with a note of sadness for the future of this kind of research. As already indicated, I've been hoping that academic circles would become interested in this work, but the edges of my optimism have already been chipped away. I've been talking to the psychology department of an Eastern university, suggesting that they investigate these matters for themselves, but I can see that I'm not getting anywhere. As Bridie Murphy might have expressed it, they won't listen. In early 1956, William Barker of the Denver Post spent three weeks in Ireland researching the Bridie Murphy story. It was felt that the previous research carried out in something of a hurry so as to make the deadline for the publication of Bernstein's book, left too many questions still unanswered, and so Barker was sent to do a more thorough job on a more leisurely timescale. As he says himself, To sum up, I found neither for nor against Bridie. Her statements, while often striking in their precision, were nonetheless liquid enough that for the most part, they could be neither proven nor disproven. Interestingly, He notes that because of the strong religious beliefs prevalent in Ireland at the time, both Catholic and Protestant, he felt a distinct lack of sympathy from the locals towards the idea of reincarnation. But whenever he does find a detail that chimes, it is almost always something very obscure that is either unknown or disbelieved by the locals. We're talking the kind of information it's difficult to imagine Ruth Simmons coming across in her own life. Bevington made it clear to me that the old directories were far from complete, and that nothing like present-day efficiency in compiling data prevailed in Bridie's time. However, both Carrigan and Farr are on record as being the only individuals of those names engaged in the foodstuffs business, and both maintained shops in the Catholic section of Belfast, near enough to each other to have been competitors. How or by what means Ruth Simmons could have obtained this obscure information when it took the Belfast librarians weeks to uncover it defies easy explanation unless one accepts the previous lifetime memory, it seems to me. But let's go back to the self-styled history student's attack. She says her husband and his father were barristers. Catholics were not emancipated in Ireland until 1825. They had no rights, much less any opportunity to be barristers. So say the academics. I was to meet more than one Irishman who confused the Catholic Emancipation Act of 1829, not 1825 as Bridie's critic says, With the earlier Catholic Relief Act of 1793. The 1793 ruling enabled Catholics to enter the legal profession. One of the great Catholic heroes of the day took advantage of this, the distinguished lawyer Daniel O'Connell, elected to Parliament in 1828. The later Catholic Emancipation Act provided for the removal of nearly all remaining discriminations which had been imposed on Catholics in the past. By its authority, a Catholic could, after 1829, hold any office except that of King, Lord Chancellor of England, or Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Bridie mentions visiting Blarney Castle just outside Cork City and kissing the famous Blarney Stone. This came in for some criticism when Barker visited Cork, it being generally believed that though the castle and the stone are hundreds of years old, the tradition of kissing the stone is traced to a poem written in 1840, later than Bridie reports doing so. However, Dermot Foley, chief librarian in that city and one of the sceptics, dug into the matter of the beginning of the stone-kissing tradition, and came out with an apology to Bridie. T. Crofton Croker, he said, in his Researches in the South of Ireland, published 1824, establishes the custom of having been practised at least as early as 1820. And then Barker gets down to the business of finding out where Bridie lived. She states that she lived in the Meadows, but doesn't specify if that's the name of a house, a region, or what. So Barker heads to the city library to track down William Beaufort's 1801 map of Cork to see if he can match this name to anything from that time. You can get the map easily online yourself now, it's very detailed and very beautiful. If you're familiar with the city, it's amazing to see how much things have changed. The part of the city now simply known as the Mardyke was then called Mardyke Meadows, with the Mardyke Walk Road flanked on either side by open fields. Interestingly, the name Meadows only appears on this 1801 map, being absent from the next earliest map available, Thomas Holt's map from 1832. Again, it turns out that Bridie's details check out in a very specific way for just the time when she's supposed to have been there, but not any later. There aren't any houses marked in the area in 1801, though there are in the 1832 map, but even with this pretty spectacular coup for Bridie, Barker still can't win the librarian as a convert. Despite Dermot's admission that the Meadows, as it logically might come to be called by the locals, was a reality, Foley concluded his letter with the dogged statement, I feel the whole story has a false base somewhere. I interrupt my analysis of the Pictorial Weekly's negative angle on Bridie to mention the Foley reaction because it was typical in Ireland. Even when a very obscure pro-Bridie item was unearthed, like the Meadows, which in Cork had long been forgotten, Still, the Irish scholars would fall back on the belief that something had to be wrong because people just don't live more than once. It isn't any kind of proof, but as with almost all of Bridie's details, it implies a depth of knowledge about this time and place, information that's not common knowledge even here, and only accurate for a short period of time. For example, that this area was only called the Meadows for a short period of time and hasn't been called that for a long time, as far as I can tell. That's difficult to explain. The week I read this, I took a stroll down the Mardyke Walk myself. It's still a pleasant place for a walk, and though it's pretty urban today, it's tree-lined, with the open green areas of the UCC gym and a cricket club on one side. Brydie's claim that she had an iron bed as a child, claimed by Cork academics to be an impossibility in Ireland in the early 19th century, is bolstered by an unusual source, the English novelist William Makepeace Thackeray. In his Irish sketchbook of 1842 the writer visits an Ursuline convent in Black Rock outside Cork City and states that all the nuns have metal beds, with the implication that they do so because they are somewhat cheap and easy to source. Apparently, some Cork academics also took issue with Bridey's use of the word town to describe Cork, which after all was and is one of the biggest cities on the island. But Cork people even today still colloquially refer to the centre of the city as town, I enjoyed Barker's dealings with the locals in the city, and though he does cork an injustice when he accidentally refers to Patrick Street as para and not pana, unless the slang here has changed since the 1950s. Overall, Barker feels inclined to speak in favour of Bridie, though he knows the evidence isn't strictly there to vindicate her. It's just that the details she provides each have an unusual level of obscurity to them. Bridie's rather uneventful life just doesn't seem like the kind of thing somebody would invent. The way he puts it himself, a pro would over-egg the story, meaning that if this had been concocted by somebody deliberately, they would probably have felt inclined to give Bridie a more exciting life. Direct evidence for the characters in Bridie's life proves impossible to find. Part of this is due to her habit of upgrading her family. Bridie, the way her character is revealed to us, is something of a snob, And she's caught out a few times in the tapes, claiming that her father, brother or husband were lawyers, but then at other times admitting that they were farmers. This makes knowing where to look for them rather more difficult, but it also makes Bridie, oddly enough, feel more like a real person. In particular, a person imbued with all the social prejudices of her day. When an article detailing his findings was published, it was trashed and ridiculed by various papers and literary authorities. What's interesting about this attack was that it came on the one hand from scientists who felt that reincarnation was impossible, but also from religious observers who felt that it was heretical. The greatest lasting damage to the Bridie story was done by the Chicago American and Life magazine, who reported that an investigation into Ruth Simmons' own life brought forth details that were eerily similar to the facts of Bridie's life. According to a 1990 evaluation by the American Journal of Clinical Hypnosis, a close neighbour whom Simmons knew well as a child was Mrs. Bridie Murphy Corkell. Simmons had an aunt who died when Simmons was a child. That relative came from Ireland and often told her stories about life in her homeland. The neighbour, Bridie, lived in the Irish city of Cork. Simmons, as a child, had been infatuated with Mrs. Corkell's son, John, and Bridie married a man named Sean, which is Irish for John. Simmons had a brother who died when she was five and Bridie said her brother died when she was four. One of Simmons' favourite childhood songs was Danny Boy, which was also Bridie's favourite. According to her foster parents, Simmons imitated a brogue or accent very well, and at times Bridie spoke to Bernstein in a passable Irish brogue. Simmons' foster parents had a friend whom she called Uncle Plaz, and Bridie had an uncle with that identical and unusual name. Simmons, who had naturally brown hair, wanted to have red hair so much as a child that she had once tinted hers that colour. Bridie said that she had bright red hair. A high school teacher reported that Simmons was actively involved in dramatics and liked to play act. In those settings, Simmons had memorised several Irish monologues that she delivered in a heavy brogue. In one monologue, she adopted the persona of Bridget Mahan. Note the initials BM. Another monologue was called Mrs. Dooley on Archer Road, and Bridie had claimed that she and her husband had resided on Dooley Road in Belfast. Subsequent investigation disclosed that no street by that name had ever existed in Belfast. There are other links also, but these are the most striking ones. It's pretty damning evidence. It isn't proof, but a case of cryptonesia is easier to swallow than a genuine case of reincarnation. As the sceptics say, when you hear hooves, you think of horses first, not centaurs. It seems likely that Bridie Murphy emerged as a confabulation of these memories and traits, a fantasy, albeit a remarkably consistent one. And for most people, that's how the story ends. By and large, this explanation has been accepted ever since, and whenever this story is referred to in books, it's usually referred to as a case that's been soundly debunked. However, this very material was called out by William Barker in later editions of Bernstein's book, He claims that the anti-Bridey articles were prepared by one Reverend Wally White, a man who admitted that he did so in order to discredit the phenomena that threatened his own religious beliefs, and who in any case had never known Simmons or her family, and had no special knowledge of them. Barker points out that the supposed Irish aunt, Mrs. Marie Burns, though being of Irish descent, was born in New York and spent most of her life in Chicago. She did live with Ruth's family for a period of time when Ruth was 18, but she had never lived in Ireland and had no particular interest in the place. Barker tracked down the high school teacher who supposedly taught Simmons how to speak with an Irish accent, Mrs Harry G. Solnier, only to find out that she barely remembered Ruth and had never heard of Mr Dooley on Archie Road. Ruth herself, though never convinced of the reality of reincarnation and fairly uninterested in promoting Bridie Murphy in any way, admitted that she had never done any such drama training beyond elocution lessons, and never done any Irish dancing either. The dead brother was entirely a fabrication of the newspapers. Ruth made it known that he had never existed. She had never had a brother. When Barker really gets into dissecting the kind of uncritical and frankly superstitious thinking that lie behind the anti-Bridey articles, his frustration comes to a boil. Tabloid parallelo Ruth, as a tot, lived on Blair Street in Madison. Blair Street, some distance away from her old home, is crossed by Gorham Street. A block and a half from her house was St. John's Lutheran Church. The pastor was John N. Walstead. Bridie speaks of a Catholic priest, Father John Joseph Gorman. And isn't all that an amazing coincidence? My answer? Well, I'll give you another amazing coincidence. I have lived in Denver most of my life, including my childhood. In Denver, not too distant from our house, is Gorman Avenue. And in our neighbourhood is a St. John's Catholic Church. And like everyone else in the US, I have known people, including Padres, named John and Joseph. And furthermore, I'm not even Bridie Murphy. However, by the Chicago Americans' reasoning, on a coincidental basis, if I were hypnotised, I'd speak as if I were she. Oddly enough, this is an almost perfect example of how folks looking to justify supernatural happenings find examples of coincidences in ordinary sets of data. But here we have the same error being committed by those who are trying to debunk the supernatural, it goes to show that nobody has a monopoly on bad research. The neighbour named Bridie, however, was real, and this is, for me, something that's more difficult to get over. Ruth claimed that she had never actually spoken with her as a child and had no idea what her last name even was. This real Bridie had in fact refused to be interviewed by the Chicago American, and she wasn't from Cork, she was from Mayo. However, her name being cork does seem somewhat suspect. Bridie was dead right on at least two dozen facts Ruth simply could not have acquired in this country, even if she had set out deliberately to study up on Irish obscurities. And certainly, these data were not given an 18-year-old Chicago girl listening to folklore allegedly handed on by a New Yorker who'd never been to Ireland. The more time one devotes to Bridie's six hours' worth of testimony, the more points in her favour seem justified. For instance, when I was in Ireland... Irish scholars said she was wrong when she spoke of a tuppence, meaning the single coin worth two cents. But he said flatly there was no such monetary denomination. Yet after my return, we learned that coin collectors specialising in the monies of the British Isles are perfectly aware that there was indeed a tuppence during Brady's time. It was circulated between 1797 and 1850, a rare and telling bit of information. But it seems as though at this point the world had moved on. The whole Bridie Murphy thing had just proved to be another 10-day wonder, and public interest just wasn't there anymore. Barker's rebuttals of the poorly researched, sceptical articles were not published until the 1960s, so for most people, the story ended with Bridie exposed as a hoax. As far as I can tell, nobody ever reinvestigated the details of Ruth's life, so Barker effectively has the last word. So what are we of the 21st century to make of all this? Personally, even though I love a good story, I'm a fan of Occam's Razor too, and if there's a chance that all this can be explained by false memories and cryptonesia, well, that fits into my understanding of the world far better than an alternative such as reincarnation. On balance, lacking irrefutable and extraordinary evidence, otherwise, well, that's where I have to leave it. But it simply can't be stated that the case was ever proved to be false either. The debunking articles are replete with lies and cannot be considered a useful source of information. For me, there's no question of a deliberate hoax, anyway. Ruth's lack of interest in the case and Bernstein's life as a businessman with only a passing interest in the occult really don't point in that direction. The book itself, The Search for Bridie Murphy, is out of print as far as I can tell, but it's worth tracking down. It's a great read. Not only does it take place in a magical 1950s era of dapper, stylish ladies and gentlemen who seem to do nothing but attend cocktail parties and earnestly discuss clairvoyance, telepathy and hypnotism, a world I wouldn't mind hanging out in, at least for an evening, but the way in which Bernstein deals with these topics is always even-handed and utterly sensible. He never comes across like a man who's desperate to prove the reality of reincarnation. After all, it doesn't underpin any particular worldview he's trying to sell. He comes off more like an intelligent man who accidentally stumbled across something he can't explain and just wants to find out the truth. Though he does begin to take an interest in reincarnation, it never comes across as if he's forcing facts to fit with a preconceived idea. And he's aware that the evidence he has, though striking, is not proof. For proof indeed might turn out to be impossible. As he puts it himself, If a woman walked in here today and claimed that she lived in Ireland from 1798 until 1864 what questions would you ask her in order to prove conclusively that her statement was either true or false? Of course, he may simply be painting himself this way to make the story more believable, but the fact remains that after the success of the book died down, Bernstein went back to his business interests and never again dabbled in anything parapsychological. There were no sequels to the Bridie story. He never set himself up as some kind of hypnosis expert, though he could probably have made a fortune doing so. In fact, neither Bernstein nor Ruth Simmons took part in any further promotion associated with the Brady murphy events. Almost. Simmons did turn up once for a few minutes on a game show called To Tell the Truth in 1966, but that does seem to have been the limit of her fame-seeking. The book ends, as many from this period do, with an assurance that psychic phenomena will continue to be investigated in the future, and that science is still in the early days of learning about it. This tone always makes me a bit sad. To think that it seemed to rational-minded people, many of them scientists, that we were on the verge of taking the supernatural seriously makes me wish that we still had this kind of belief, that the supernatural was maybe about to become mainstream. The kind of evidence that may have bolstered this still eludes us, but we live in hope, and the search goes on. Well, there you have it, folks. That was uh, an original episode of my old show, Strange Ireland, which, as you can probably guess, uh, dealt with things that were unusual, as my current show does, but was focused more entirely on Irish topics. Obviously, I still do them occasionally, or if there is an Irish reference to something, I will try and work it in there. Listening to that, I wonder if my voice has changed or if it's just equip- an equipment thing. Uh, back in those days, I had more space. At the time, I was using an SM58 hooked up to some sort of preamp, as I remember, whereas now I use a Zoom instead with the SM58 sticking out of it sometimes, depending on where I am. Um, so that's that's one thing. Another thing that strikes me is my, my optimism about the whole subject in those days and um, the excitement and the belief that... You know, it, it is an unqualified, interesting, positive thing. And I think it can be, and I think it still is in some areas for sure. Um, the last four years have been trying. If you cast your mind back to some of the madness that has been going on around the world, that can be directly attributed to people believing weird things, to a kind of erosion in the kind of acceptance of uh, scientific orthodoxy. I, I find it a lot tougher to separate these topics that I do enjoy from some of the dangers that come out of irrational thinking. I suppose it's just something on which my thinking will have to continue to evolve and by no means do I intend to tar everybody with the same brush there but I, I I do mean it when I say that critical and not cynical is I think the only way to go forward with both elements of that saying being equally important. Okay, I didn't say at the beginning what the contacts are, which is unlike me. Of course, you can always reach out, let us know what you think. On Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland, and on Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. So as I finish up my doubt here, I'll just say once again, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car, was this an unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.